Welcome to the Shoreline Community Church Podcast, a community of love, acceptance, forgiveness, and belonging. For more information, be sure to check us out online at shorelinecc.com. Dr. Jack teaches in the theology department over there, so today I'm so excited to welcome Jack Wisemore here to teach us and to share God's Word uh, on Pentecost. But before we do that, can we just pray? Can we just pray for him and just pray for us that we would be receivers of God's word, but and as a result become doers of God's word together. So Lord, we thank you, Lord, for, uh, for Jack and Jen, for being a part of this local family. And Lord, as he brings the word today, Lord, may, may you empower it. May you use your word. May you speak through your servant today to bring forth what we need for this moment and this time, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Dr. Jack. It is my delight to be here this morning speaking with you. It's, I've been looking forward to this ever since Pastor Duane brought up the possibility of me coming and talking about this topic because this is a, a topic I love to talk about because I really care about it. But this is a really uh, interesting area. And before we do that, though, I do want to mention a little something about a friend of mine named Larry. When I was in college, I went to the University of Washington. I lived in a Christian fraternity called the University Christian Union. And um, one day, I'm uh, at the frat, and there's this big, remember the old garbage cans, the old steel round garbage cans, remember those things before we had the wheelie bins? And I can't remember why, but there's this large garbage can, steel garbage can, full of bricks. And I've got to get these bricks up onto a porch, down the porch, and then put back down on the other side. And I can't remember why they were there, I don't remember why we had to move them, but it was my job that day to do this. And, okay, take a look at me. Now, I'm, I'm pushing 60, but even when I'm 20, I'm not exactly this, mm, the guy you think about moving bricks kind of guy. I mean, I have so little upper body strength that when I was in junior high, I threw the shot put, but the coach would bring out the new seventh graders, hey, Wisemore, come over here, throw the shot. And I could throw it, and he'd say, now, if a scrawny guy like Wisemore can throw it that far, you know, it's got something to do with technique, not so much brute force. I mean, I'm just not the guy to move bricks. And I'm sitting there trying to, well, not sitting, I'm standing there trying to figure out how I'm going to do this. Do I, do I, I can barely move this can with all my might. Do I, do I take them out three or four at a time? Do I walk over here? Do I take them out and stack them up on the, I'm trying to think this through. And my friend Larry walks up. Now, Larry is a good old boy from Idaho, Idaho ranch boy. And Larry just gets this look on his face, and he gets this smile, he has this wolf grin, this twinkle in his eye, and he says, come here, you get on that side, we just vertically lift this thing right up onto the porch. And I'm just like, what in the world? Because Larry had muscles upon muscles. You could count the individual fibers. He was one of those guys who just had brute force, and he loved to use it. And I loved working with Larry because he had that ability, that strength, that power that I simply didn't have. Um, so we got into some of the weirdest things and we got involved in some... I'm moving into my first apartment. Uh, Jen and I had just gotten married and we had a hide-a-bed sofa. This thing weighed more than a ton, I th it felt like it anyways. And I'd done the measurements and it would not fit up the stairwell that we needed to get in order to get it to our apartment. And Larry just looks at me and he goes, you get on that side, we put it vertical, and he goes, you keep it balanced from above, and he just vertically lifts this thing. 
all the way up two flights of stairs. I mean, Larry just had that. Now, I'm having this, you know, I feel really important. I'm steadying this thing from above, right? But Larry is just this brute force machine. Now, I think about Larry every time I think about the day of Pentecost. Because Larry was one of those guys who came alongside me and helped me to do things I couldn't do. And, and even to the point of, there were some things that are so daunting in my life that I, I'm not even going to try to do that. Like get that hide-a-bed up to our apartment. And Larry's like, no, we can do this. That reminds me so much of the way the Holy Spirit worked on the day of Pentecost and how he's portrayed throughout the book of Acts. Now, in the book of Acts, what we've got is uh, uh, an interesting kind of situation. If, if you're not familiar, the writer is the guy named Luke. And Luke wrote two books in the New Testament. He wrote the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts. And they're kind of a two-volume sort of deal. Uh, the Gospel of Luke is primarily talking about Jesus, giving us the story of Jesus, what Jesus diz and, diz, did and what he does. Um, and then that's the end of that book. And then in the book of Acts, he's primarily telling us about what followers of Jesus are going to do after Jesus isn't there anymore. Uh, so it's kind of a two-volume work. And at the beginning of the second uh, uh, volume, the book of Acts, he spends the first chapter kind of uh, uh, refreshing our memory about what happened at the end of the Gospel of Luke. And it says this in uh, Luke, excuse me, in Acts chapter 1. Uh, on one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command. Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father has promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Now this makes the disciples extremely excited, and they want to know all the details. They want to know the winds and the where's and the hows and all the kind of things that you and I would naturally want to ask if we were there. And Jesus says, no, 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 no. That's a God thing, don't worry about that. But then he follows up with this next statement in verse 8. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, and in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. This is Luke's focus. Starting in chapter 2, the rest of the book of Acts is going to show us how this plays out. How the church, empowered by the Holy Spirit, is going to tell people about Jesus. They're going to witness about who he is, what he's done, what he's done in their lives, about all the kind of things, how Christ um, is uh, able to forgive us of our sins. He died, he rose from the dead, he forgives us of our sins. If we believe in him, we can be forgiven of our sins. When, when Luke uses the word believe... He doesn't just mean information. He means that Christ is going to be Lord. One of the favorite ways that Luke has to talk about Jesus is to call him Lord. Because when he uses that word Lord, it's acknowledging that we respect Christ's authority in our lives. We're going to follow him. We're going to do what he says. That we're no longer the one making all the decisions about our life, but he is the one that we look to. We're going to witness about that. We're going to witness about what he's done, what he's doing in our lives, and how we believe in him for the forgiveness of sins. Um, it also calls us to repent, which means we're going to change the way we behave in light of who Jesus is and what he tells us to do. So it's not just, 
I believe I have this mental informational kind of notion, but it's transformational. It's going to change who we are and what we do and how we see things. Jesus is that big of a deal to Luke. Hope he's that big of a deal to you and me. Okay? So, the day of Pentecost arrives. The disciples have gone. They've done what Jesus said. They've waited in this upper room. They're waiting for the Spirit. And on the day of Pentecost, it begins this way in chapter 2, verse 1. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly, a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. There's this phenomena, there's this extravagant thing. People are amazed by this. A crowd gathers. They're wondering, what's going on? They're especially amazed because later on in verse 11, it says that the disciples were declaring the wonders of God in their own tongues, that the people hearing who are from all different parts of the world were able to hear them declaring the wonders of God in their own language. Not the language that they were expecting, not the Koine Greek that was the the common kind of language that was running around at that time, not even Aramaic, which would have been another common language, that they were speaking in all these various languages, and that gets people's attention. What's going on here? Now, it's weird enough, it's strange enough, that some people looked at them and went, no, 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 they're just drunk. Okay? And I want to emphasize that just a little bit because um, some of us, and I won't throw this on you, I... I like a little bit of decorum. I like things to kind of be a little neat and tidy. Okay? Uh, But that's not what's going on here in Acts chapter 2. This is not... Good morning, let me explain to you exactly how things are going to be. Uh, This is wild enough that some people are going, ah, these guys have had a little, you know, a few too many martinis. You know, there's something going on here. They think they're drunk. But Peter stands up. Now... Again, back in the Gospel of Luke, we hear the story about when Jesus gets crucified. Peter is the chicken in the story. He's the guy who three times, when people say, hey, don't you know this Jesus? No, I don't know know who you're talking about. He, He doesn't want to tell anybody that he even knows Jesus. So he's the last person in the world that we expect to stand up and explain to this crowd of people what's going on here. And this is what he says in chapter 2, verse 17 and 18. He says, you want to know what's going on here? Let me tell you, we're not drunk. This is what the prophet Joel predicted. And he cites from Joel. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days and they will prophesy. This is the explanation that Peter gives of what they've seen. This is the thing that Joel talked about. It's about dreams and visions and prophecy. It's got old men and young men. It's got men and women. It's got everybody involved with this. I also want you to notice there is no mention in this passage where he's quoting from Joel 
about the forgiveness of sins. I want that to sink in for a second. Because we know that Luke cares a lot about Jesus and the forgiveness of sins. But when Luke is explaining through Peter's voice here, citing Joel, this isn't about the forgiveness of sins. This is about your young men will dream dreams. Excuse me, will get visions. Your old men will dream dreams. They'll prophesy. This is what the description, the explanation, when they say, what does this mean? He says, this is that. This is what's going on here. The Spirit's poured out, and now these people are dreaming. They're going to see visions. There's prophecy involved. This is going to be a laser focus of Luke throughout the book of Acts. Luke is incredibly concerned with how the Holy Spirit is going to manage, direct, help out, assist, whatever we want to call it, the whole process of telling people about Jesus. Now, I want to be really, really clear here. Um, This is not the full total meal, full meal deal of what the Holy Spirit does. Different authors in the New Testament like to focus in on different aspects of what the Holy Spirit does. So the Gospel of John, for example, loves to talk about the Holy Spirit to work in our conversion, in our salvation, and our ongoing becoming more like Jesus. Luke, he leaves that to John. He wants to focus on the Holy Spirit's work in how people find out about Jesus. They're not contradictory, they're just focusing on a different thing. It's, it's sort of like um, if you were writing, you know, texting somebody during the service, uh, some of you might be talking about the verses that I'm talking about, because that's your interest. Others of you might be going, um, really? He's drinking something in the pulpit here? That might be the thing you're focusing on. They're not different, excuse me, they're not, dif- they're not contradictory, They're just different emphasis. You're noticing different things. Luke cares a ton about how the Holy Spirit is going to be promoting, helping, assisting, guiding, leading this whole process of telling others about Jesus, what Luke likes to call witness. Okay? So later in the sermon, after he's told them that this is what's going on here, the book of Joel, visions, dreams, prophecy, he then gets around to talking about Jesus. Surprise, surprise, right? In verse 33, he describes Jesus this way. He pulls us back to the whole notion of what's going on on the day of Pentecost, that Jesus has been exalted to the right hand of God, that he, Jesus, has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see and hear. And then later on in verse 36, therefore let all Israel be assured of this, God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. Now, a couple of interesting things in this passage here, right? Um, he's the Messiah. If you were an Old Testament Jew person, Jew, Jew, Jewish person, um, you would understand that when the Jews were talking about the Messiah, they were talking about the guy who was going to come and deliver Israel from all their enemies. And Jesus is that. But he's more than just Israel's Messiah. He is also the Lord. And this is part of the way that Luke starts to crack this open so that the Jewish believers don't simply see Jesus as the Jewish Messiah, as the Jewish Savior, as the the Savior for the Jews, but he's the Lord for all. 
And this is going to be very important as the church moves beyond a narrowly Jewish focus and starts to witness and testify about Jesus out in the broader world. After Peter says this, the crowd responds to this empowered sermon by Peter and asks, what do we got to do to be saved? And in verses 38 and 39, Peter says what they need to do. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God calls. Three thousand people respond to Peter's empowered message that day and embrace Jesus as their Lord and Savior. I want you to notice a couple things about this passage that sometimes are easily overlooked. Sorry if I'm doing a little more professorial than we're used to, but with this kind of a topic, I got to be a little bit more professorial, a little less sermonizing. Um, But I want to point out a couple things here. Um, Sometimes when we're reading this, we go through really fast, especially if you've grown up in the church, um, because we know in Matthew's gospel, it says to baptize in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, which is, by the way, how we perform baptisms here at, at Shoreline. Um, but you'll notice in this passage, Luke wants to make it so clear. He wants to tie salvation so closely to the person of Jesus that when he talks about water baptism, it's baptism in the name of Jesus Christ. He's wanting to make sure that nobody misses that. And throughout the book of Acts, and by the way, this is also true in Paul's writings, They're going to have water baptism focused in on Jesus because it's so easy to sometimes not recognize that he's the centerpiece of this. Now again, it doesn't mean it's wrong. We we practice the Trinitarian formula of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But I want you to see what Luke's doing here literarily. He's saying, don't miss Jesus. This is about Jesus. But then Peter talks about the gift of the Holy Spirit. He uses that phrase. He uses the word promise, which is a callback to Jesus' words in chapter 1. This is about that baptism of the Holy Spirit, about the gift of the Spirit that comes to folks to allow them to be empowered witnesses. When When the Spirit comes upon you, you'll receive power to be my witnesses. That same Holy Spirit coming is not limited just to the day of Pentecost. It's also for you, the people who were there, who hadn't already been baptized in the Holy Spirit, your children, and those who are all far off, all that the Lord our God will call. So this isn't just, hey, one and done. This is all that's going to happen. Aren't we glad this happened for these guys over here, the 120 in the upper room? No, this is something which applies to other folks. And we'll see this pattern repeated in the book of Acts several more times, where other people will experience the baptism with the Holy Spirit. So it's not just about the disciples on the day of Pentecost. Okay. Now, again, I'm doing a little bit more professorial than I would normally do if I was preaching on a a Sunday morning, but I want to do some common questions. Uh, Some common questions about baptism of the Holy Spirit, about the coming of the Spirit that Luke is talking about on the day of Pentecost. 
because I find this is probably the easiest way to dispel some misunderstandings. Okay? So the first question, what is the point? <laughs> what is the point of spirit baptism? The short and simple answer, it's spirit-empowered witness. That is the point. Tongues are there, but tongues are not the point. It's about having the spirits. It's about Larry Cooper coming alongside of me and helping me to do stuff I can't do by myself. As the Holy Spirit helps me, empowers me, assists me to tell people about Jesus in a way which is more effective than I can tell people about Jesus on my own. Okay? It's an additional assistance helping us to tell people about Jesus so that they can repent, so that they can believe in Jesus, they can have their sins forgiven, they can begin to live a life that's being transformed by Christ and eventually even have eternal life. Now, I don't know about you, but when I start thinking about telling somebody about having their sins forgiven, I can get excited about that. This is why it's called the good news. Um, that you don't have to live your life this way, that you don't have to live with all the guilt and regret from the past, that God can take care of this through Christ's sacrifice, and then you start to live a different kind of life, and ultimately, eternally. You don't just die and turn into worm chow, and that's the end of the story. We have eternal life in perspective. The point of spirit baptism is empowered witness. It's easy for us to lose sight of that. Don't lose sight. Second question. Don't I have to be super spiritual? I mean, he says, do I have to be spirit baptized to be an effective witness for Jesus? Do I have to be spirit baptized to tell somebody about Jesus? And the short answer to that is no. Okay? The book of Acts actually gives us an example of someone who was a very effective, it even says he was effective, witness for Jesus who didn't even know there was the Holy Spirit. If you go to Acts chapter 18, there's a guy named Apollos. Apollos is a stud. Apollos is one of these guys, um, he's from Alexandria. He's described as a learned man. Alexandria is kind of like um, the Boston, the Ivy League of its day. He grows up in Alexandria. He's educated. He's learned. He's Jewish, and he knows the Old Testament backwards and forwards. Um, he is a Christian. He is a believing Jew um, who knows about the way of the Lord, it says. Um, and he instructed, he taught about Jesus accurately. So we've got this guy. He's got serious brain power right? He knows his stuff, and he's in the synagogues refuting the Jews, telling them why Jesus is the Messiah. But it also says he only knew the baptism of John. And when we take into account what's said in chapter 19 about other believers in Ephesus, the most likely theory of what happens with Apollos is that Apollos was probably in Jerusalem or had close contact with somebody who was in Jerusalem after the resurrection. So Jesus is raised from the dead. He's been glorified. He's appearing to people. So Apollos knows about Jesus. He knows about the salvation that comes in his name. He knows about the forgiveness of sins and all that sort of stuff. 
But then, for some reason, he leaves Jerusalem before the day of Pentecost. But he knows enough, and he's accurate enough, that he can actually go into synagogues and tell people about this cool thing that's happened in Jesus. Okay. Um, he is so good, in fact, at doing this, that the same word that's used for the disciples in chapter 4 and in chapter 14, it says that he spoke boldly in the synagogues. This guy knew his stuff and he was bold for Jesus. Spirit baptism is more than just about boldness. It can include that. But that in and of itself isn't the point. We know that Apollos doesn't know about the Holy Spirit um, until Priscilla and Aquila bump into him. By the way, I just want to point out it's Priscilla and Aquila. Priscilla is the uh, dominant, if you want to use that word, the main, the, the high status individual in that power couple relationship. Um, they run into Apollos, they realize the situation. And they explain to him, and I love how the NIV puts it, more adequately. It wasn't that he was wrong. He just didn't know what happened. They bring him up to date. And again, we see in chapter 19, the other converts up in Ephesus don't even know there is such a thing as the Holy Spirit. So Priscilla and Aquila bring him up. Apollos is a good, effective, strong witness for Jesus. You don't have to be baptized in the Holy Spirit to sell, tell somebody about Jesus. But it's really, honestly, the wrong question. Right? Do I have to be baptized in the Holy Spirit to be a witness? No, the real question is, why wouldn't I want to be empowered by the Holy Spirit? Why wouldn't I want to be helped by the Holy Spirit when I go to talk to somebody about Jesus? It's great for Apollos, he's doing the thing, he's got the brain power and the wattage and all those kinds of things, and yet, the implication from the story in 18 and 19 is, even he can do better. Spirit baptism, being an empowered witness, is not about me being better than you. It's about me being better than I am. And remember, spirit baptism really ultimately isn't about me. Have I been? Have I not been? Am I no, it's about the other people. It's about the people who you are speaking to about Jesus so that they can understand and hear. It's an important aspect of what we're trying to do, and we want to do it as well as we can. Pardon my irreverence for a moment, but whenever I get to this passage, I'm talking about this in my classes, there's a movie, Monty Python's Holy Grail. <laughs> I cannot help it. The image always comes to my mind of the Black Knight. And the Black Knight is going to fight King Arthur, and King Arthur walks up and whacks off his arm. And Arthur thinks the battle is over, and the Black Knight says, no, no, it's just a flesh wound. Right? And this goes on and on until there's just this stub of a person. I'll fight you. That kind of incapacity. Why would I want to be the Black Knight with no arms and no legs, just standing there? I guess you're not even standing if you don't have any legs, right? Um, it's that kind of a mental picture that I get of 
Why wouldn't I want to be standing up? Why wouldn't I want to have everything that's available to me as I try and tell people about Jesus? Um, So it's not about, I can't. It's, why wouldn't I want to? As one of my friends always puts it, it's like asking, do you have to open your presents on Christmas Day? No, you don't have to, but why wouldn't you want to? That's what the baptism of the Holy Spirit is like. We want to have all the help we can get for the sake of other people. Question number three. Don't you have to be super spiritual to be baptized in the Holy Spirit? Don't you have to be perfect or or really one of those high-ranking kind of folks in order to have the Holy Spirit work through you in this way? Again, short answer, no. And again, the book of Acts shows us this. In the book of Acts, we've got some really, uh, for lack of a better phrase, unspiritual people who are baptized in the Holy Spirit. At Cornelius' house, Acts chapter 10 and and chapter 11, uh, there's a a Gentile named Cornelius. Um, An angel appears to him, says, go send for a guy named Peter. Peter has a vision that says, hey, don't call unclean what I've called clean, so it's okay to go talk to Gentiles even though you're a Jew and you're supposed to stay separate. Um, So Cornelius sends for Peter. Peter comes up to tell him about Jesus. Cornelius is so spiritually immature, so so not super spiritual, that when Peter walks in, he drops down and starts to worship Peter. And Peter has to go, no, 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 we don't do that, we don't do that. We worship God. And yet, as Peter is telling the crowd at Cornelius' house about Jesus, they're baptized in the Holy Spirit and speak in tongues. We have another example also in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 8, in Samaria. Up in Samaria, Peter and John go up, um, pray for the folks there to receive the Holy Spirit. They get baptized in the Holy Spirit, and there's a guy named Simon. And Simon says, that's cool. I want to be able to do that. He is so unspiritual that he attempts to buy the ability to baptize people in the Holy Spirit. And John is like, no, it doesn't work that way. Simon is not a super spiritual person. You don't have to be perfect. You don't have to pray for 27 hours in order to be baptized in the Holy Spirit. Sometimes we get the idea that we do because back in chapter 1, it says the disciples were gathered together and praying while they were waiting, and so that's led some people to think, okay, I've got to pray hard enough, and if I just do this right and click my heels three times, then the Holy Spirit will come. Cornelius' house? At Samaria? You don't have to be perfect. Again, this isn't primarily about me. This isn't whether I'm spiritual enough or whether God loves me more or loves me less than anybody else. This is about me being helped by the Holy Spirit to tell other people. It's for the sake of other folks. We can't lose sight of that. Fourth question. What's the deal with tongues? 
The answer to this, well, it's a little more complicated. Okay, uh, and I'm just going to be honest about this. Uh, tongues are weird. Okay, I grew up in a church where we spoke in tongues. I grew up in a family where people spoke in tongues. And even I know this is weird. But it's part of that weirdness that makes it work so well within the story of the book of Acts. It's because of the weirdness that the crowd gathers in chapter 2. It's because of the weirdness that we um, see in Cornelius' house that Peter knows, hey, my, oh my goodness, the Holy Spirit's fallen upon the Gentiles just like it did on us. They've been baptized in the Holy Spirit. In fact, in chapter 11, he'll even use that exact terminology when he's telling the Jews back in Jerusalem, hey, baptized in the Holy Spirit just like us back in the beginning. In the book of Acts, there are five examples of spirit baptism. Three of the five explicitly and specifically mention tongues. Acts chapter 2, the day of Pentecost, Acts chapter 10 and 11, Cornelius' house, and Acts chapter 19 up in Ephesus. Remember, Ephesus is where they didn't even know the Holy Spirit had come yet? Three times where tongues are specifically mentioned. Two of those times, by the way, it's specifically stated that it's a sign, that this means the Holy Spirit has come. We know that because of this. The fourth example is Samaria. I already told you about Simon at Samaria. Um, when the Spirit comes in Samaria, something happens. Something dramatic. Some, something, let, me, let me just put it this way. <clears throat> Hope I don't mess up the sound person too badly here. Receive the Holy Spirit. Boy, I want to spend money to be able to do that, Jack. Right? There's some kind of manifestation, there's some kind of phenomena that Simon sees that makes him say, ooh, I want to be able to do that. Tongues is the best explanation. Before the Peter and John get up to Samaria, you've already got Philip, the evangelist, running around doing exorcisms, performing miracles of healing, um, and so that makes those things less likely to be the phenomena that Simon sees. It's possible. But tongues are the best explanation for why Simon wants to buy this ability. The fifth example also doesn't mention spirit baptism. In fact, it doesn't really mention any concrete phenomena. This is when Paul, in chapter 9, we later on he changes his name to Paul, back then he was still called Saul, um, but when Saul receives the Holy Spirit, when Paul receives the Holy Spirit, there's no real mention. Um, possibly, he, is, he does have his sight restored. And so there's that kind of like the door opens a little bit to the possibility that maybe a healing there might be a sign of spirit baptism. But again, it's not as likely because just back in chapter 8, the healing isn't likely the sign there either. Plus, we also know from what Paul writes in Corinthians that he speaks in tongues. Um, and so that adds some weight to the possibility. Now, again, I want to be really, really honest. It is not bulletproof. Every time the Holy Spirit comes, Luke doesn't say, and then they spoke in tongues. But three of the five for sure, fourth more than likely, and fifth probably. So the overwhelming evidence tends to support this notion of 
tongues being associated with spirit baptism. So that's the first thing I want to say about the complication of tongues. The second sub-point here, if you want to think of it that way, nowhere in the book of Acts does anyone witness in tongues. And I want to say that again. We don't have an example in the book of Acts of anybody witnessing, telling people about Jesus in tongues. Now, sometimes people get this idea because in the descriptions of Acts chapter 2, when the Spirit comes upon them, they start speaking in tongues, all the strangers are going, hey, what's going on here? We hear them speaking in our own language. Um, But I want to point out a couple things here. Number one, the description of the tongues, how they understand what is being said in their own language. In verse 11, it says, they declare the wonders of God. It's a very generic statement. When this happens at Cornelius' house, it's even more generic. They are praising God. Nothing wrong with declaring the wonders of God or praising God, but that's not testimony. That's not witness. And when we get to chapter 19 in Ephesus, all it says is they prophesied. In Acts chapter 2, even though all these people have heard them speaking in tongues in their own languages, it takes Peter to stand up and speak to people in a language he knows, not some language he doesn't know, to speak to people in a language they know to tell them about Jesus. This is a task that the Holy Spirit helps us with, but that we are involved with. That we are the ones who get the privilege, we get the task, we get the joy of telling other people about Jesus. I don't know if you caught this or not, but when I was talking about Cornelius' house, an angel appears to Cornelius and says, send for Peter and tells him where to find him. In my mind, the way this should have been done is the angel should have said, hey, Cornelius, I'm an angel, right? This is about Jesus. Jesus does this. Jesus does that. There you go. In my feeble humanity, that's how I think God... That would really impress me if an angel shows up and says all these kinds of things. But the angel doesn't do that. The testimony of Jesus, the telling people about Jesus, the Holy Spirit seems to reserve for us. We get to do that. It seems to be important to the Holy Spirit that we are the ones who tell people about Jesus. So we want to make sure that we understand this is not about, sometimes people call this missionary tongues, where you can go up and, I've never spoken Swahili, but I get off a boat and I say, whatever I say in tongues, and the person's going to say, oh, Jesus, and they're going to fall. No, in fact, some early people in our church tradition thought that's what this was, and they went to India to try it out, and it didn't work. Now, I want to be careful, though. Please hear me very carefully. What I'm not saying, I am not saying that God cannot have someone speak in tongues and have someone hear about Jesus in the tongue speech. I'm always nervous ever saying God cannot. All right? Uh, But in the book of Acts, 
That ain't what's happening. In the book of Acts, the Spirit empowers us in a language we know to tell people about Jesus and in a language they know. So there's no preaching in tongues in the book of Acts. So then why tongues? Why are tongues so closely associated with this empowered by the Holy Spirit to tell people about Jesus? If he's not going to give us the gift of speaking a language, um, if he's not going to give us a way to preach to them in tongues, what's the connection? And honestly, we don't know. We're not told directly in Scripture this is it. But let me give you three of my favorite possible reasons, and I think they all work together quite well. Okay? The first one, God seems to like to involve our bodies in our Christianity. One of the things that the Scripture tells us is that we need to confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord, not just feel a warm fuzzy in our heart. That we take communion, we eat the bread and we drink from the cup. Even when we get baptized in water, we are getting baptized in water. It's not some kind of emotional, subjective experience. For some reason, God seems to like to not leave it purely subjective. So that's my first reason why possibly tongues are involved with spirit baptism. Uh, second, there's something about overcoming uh, ethnic and cultural barriers. We oftentimes know what kind of a culture or ethnic group someone comes from by the language they speak. It's one of the clearest indicators of, of, of in-group and out-group. I mean, this is the reason why teenagers love slang. Because they're using words that grown-ups, uncool people like me, don't use, so they know, oh yeah, you're, you're in on it. You're part of us. But when I speak in a language that I don't know, it's automatically putting me in a different kind of relationship. This isn't just for me and mine. This is, this is moving me towards that outward kind of focus. So overcoming those barriers. Third, when we speak in tongues, we're responding to a prompting by the Holy Spirit to say something. Even in an extreme case like this, where we don't even know what it is we're saying. It gets us, kind of primes the pump, motivates us to think about going ahead and saying something even when we don't have all our ducks perfectly in a row. And again, I won't put anything on you. I'll put this on me. I am a ducks in a row kind of guy. I like to know what I'm going to say, how I'm going to say it, how this is going to work. I role play it, go through the scenarios in my head. Um, but with the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit's telling you, hey, talk to this person. Ah, okay, I'm going to speak. All right. Let's do three takeaways. Three, three things. Jack, you've given me all this information. You said you were going to go professorial. I didn't think you were going to go this professorial, Jack. Um, but a couple, three takeaways that I want you to think about this week in light of what I've said this morning. The first one, belief in Jesus is all that's required to be a witness. You don't have to be a pastor or a professor. You don't have to be perfect. You're never too young or too old. It doesn't matter whether you're male or female or what ethnic group you belong to. You don't even have to be baptized in the Holy Spirit. Remember Apollos. But you can be 
a witness. If Jesus is your Lord, you've got a story to tell. Tell it. Second takeaway. Be open to empowerment from spirit baptism. Use the power that God gives us to be a witness. In Acts, the people at Cornelius' house immediately experience spirit baptism when they believe. But they're the exceptions. In the four other cases, there's always a gap in time between someone's belief and their experience of spirit baptism. So if you're living in that gap, whether it's been a day, a year, decades, that's okay, you're in good company. Don't assume it isn't for you. Don't give up asking and looking for the Spirit's help in this particular way. Remember what Jesus says in Luke chapter 11. If you, then though are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask? Ask for it and then look for the opportunities. Listen for that prompting brings me to my third point. Listen for the promptings of the Holy Spirit and don't be afraid. Sometimes, even if you have experienced baptism of the Holy Spirit, you're not listening well. Life gets busy. There's all kinds of noises and distractions. There's the internet. Um, But sometimes the people we think are the least likely, the least interested in hearing about Jesus are exactly the people the Holy Spirit knows are ready to hear. So try and listen for what the Holy Spirit might be prompting you to do, and then say it. And don't be afraid. Again, after Jesus says in chapter 11 back in Luke about giving the Holy Spirit, he describes a bunch of scary scenarios that the disciples might find themselves in. And in verse 12, he says, don't worry about how you will defend yourselves or what you will say. For the Holy Spirit will teach you at that time what you should say. Listen to those promptings and then don't be afraid. So remember, anyone can be a witness. Be open to the empowerment of the Holy Spirit and then listen and don't be afraid. Let me pray this morning. Heavenly Father, we are so thankful for the gift of the Holy Spirit that you do not expect us to just be bystanders watching passively, but that you love us and you allow us to engage in this work which is so important. We're not like the little kid who's never allowed to do anything. You want to see us active and participating and growing. Thank you for sending your Son who in turn, in his exaltation, pours out the Holy Spirit upon us so that we can be your witnesses, both here and in the rest of our lives as we go forth from this place. Help us to remember that your Spirit is with us, empowering us, guiding us, prompting us, enabling us to tell people about you. To the glory of God, amen. Such a powerful word. Would you stand with me this morning?
And this is our opportunity. I loved when Dr. Jack was talking about that connection between the physical and the spiritual. We know that. We walk by faith, not by sight, but God is requiring us to take a step. And what I'd like to do in these moments, this is your opportunity to respond. Uh, prayer teams, if you would come forward. And I, I want to encourage you and I want to challenge you. Who in your life is the Lord sending you to? Are you willing to be a fool for Jesus? Because <laughs> I will tell you, there is no greater joy than the stepping out and going, God, if this is not you, <laughs> I will fall. The greatest experiences of my life have been when I've overcome that fear and I've obeyed the voice of the Spirit saying, speak to that person, invite that person, talk to that person, go forward. Amen. On this Pentecost Sunday, I'd like for us to pray for our city of Seattle. You know, we sit in one of the most unreached cities in the world. It's one of the most beautiful I mean, the, the heavens declare the glory of the Lord. How can you look around the beautiful place that we're in and not see the Lord? But yet, it's one of the most unreached. It's one of the most confused spiritually. But yet, it's one of the most spiritually curious cities around. Would you join me? Can we just pray for Seattle? And I want to encourage you today that as, as we pray for our city, I want you to think about somebody specific. Who is it in your life? Who is it where you work? Who is it in your school? Who around you that you just want to lift their voice to the Lord? And can we just lift our voices together as we pray for our city, as we pray for our co-workers? Father, we know that you, that you told us to wait for the empowerment of the Holy Spirit to empower us to be an effective witness. And as we heard today, that witness is to testify to what you've done in us. So, Lord, do your work in us. Prepare us, O oh Lord, Father, that we, would, that we would repent any unconfessed sin, that we would give it to you, Lord, that we would come before you with clean hands. So, Lord, forgive us of our sins. Lord, forgive us of our apathy. And fill us with your spirit so that we can be empowered to do above and beyond anything we could ever ask, imagine, or hope for. And Lord, I pray this week as we walk out, Lord, whether it's on the bus, whether it's in the coffee houses, the store, in our home, Holy Spirit, would you burn in us, Lord, that we would no longer be content to walk by people, but Lord, show us how we can reach forward and speak the truth of Jesus with grace and with love. Empower us, Lord, that we would be bold, not a bold for boldness sake, but filled with the love of God. Lord, we pray for this neighborhood, Lord, that this neighborhood would, Lord, would, would be awakened to the truth and the love of Jesus. Amen? Lord, would you awaken the neighborhood, and would you use us, you have placed us here for your purpose, to be your light, to be your salt. As we have heard so clearly today, you have chosen us to be your ambassador. So, Lord, give us boldness to share. But, Lord, let it be with your love, with your grace, but anchored in your truth. Lord, we pray for our families. Lord, for those in our families that don't know you. Lord, for those in our families that are confused. God, let the light of Christ burn through us. Lord, that we wouldn't allow the enemy to silence us or to shame us into silence. But, God, that you would, you would burn with us in our prayer times, praying and asking the Lord to show us how to shave, show us when to, when to step forward, show us, how, show us how to love, show us how to reach out, I pray. In your name, Jesus, God, that we would be that effective witness, oh Lord, that we would seek you, that we would knock at your door. Lord, that we would not allow anything to keep us from all that you have, I pray. In your name, so use us, I pray in our families, in our home, in our work, in all that we do. In Jesus' name. And everyone said together, amen, amen. Did you appreciate the word from Dr. Jack today? Amen. Amen. Powerful word.
And uh, you, you may not know this, but of course, it's online on Facebook and YouTube. We, we, we always do the uh, where we pre-record it. If you see him on Facebook, yes, he was here today. He wasn't just there. Uh, but the, we also do a podcast that is a recording of the, of the message today because uh, I know for me, what, what I did on Wednesday is often a little bit, be, little bit for me, it's better on Sunday. <laughs> but it's always there, but so much was there. But let me encourage you, uh, in my life, um, nothing, well, nothing's a big word. But it is one of the most powerful things happens in my life when I have stepped out and shared the Word of God to somebody when I have been scared out of my mind. Whether it's on the bus or whether it's in the mall or in coffee houses or walking out, but when the Lord has said, I want you to say something to that person because I don't want to be offensive. You don't want to be offensive. But here's the thing. When we step out, like we heard this morning, oftentimes the most unlikely person, when I've just found a way to share the the truth and love of Christ, I led somebody to the Lord, and I've said this before, sometimes by saying nice shoes, and it just opened up. Sometimes it's been just asking someone how their day was. Allow the Lord to speak to you, whatever it is. Engage, engage, pray. You walking through your day saying, Lord, who can I share the love of Jesus with? How can I talk about you today? How can I do that? It will radically transform your life because it will deepen your prayer life because you will recognize how much you need the Lord more. Engage in that. And And here's a second part to that. As you do that, tell your story. Go to your group. Go to a friend and say, here's what happened today. I tried this out. Tell the story. Tell the story. Tell about your failures. I've learned so much by telling about my failures. I, I tried to share the love of Christ with somebody, and I felt like I just flopped on my face. But I learned through it, and God used that. We need to be stepping out and sharing the love of Jesus in everywhere that we go. We will be transformed. Our neighborhood will be transformed. I'd rather fail trying to love somebody than just choosing not to love somebody. Amen? Amen. Is that your heart today? So, Lord, help us as we walk forward today in your truth. Let your light be alive in us. Do your work in us. Shape us and help us in all that we do in your name. Amen? Amen, amen. This is our benediction. Let's say this as we leave today into this wonderful, wonderful weekend. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious towards you. The Lord turn his face towards you and give you peace. Now go and live for Jesus, telling about him. Amen.